We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. Hello, welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books that we read as children and see how they hold up. And on this episode, we are talking about the first in Philip Pullman's His Dark Material series, The Golden Compass, or I suppose better known as in other parts of the world as The Northern Lights. Yes. It's a very funny <laughs> and a very American story about why it got named The Golden Compass, because originally the trilogy was called The Golden Compasses, and the American publisher thought The Golden Compass referred to the alethiometer, which there's no textual reference to the alethiometer as a golden compass. It, it, it is golden. Well, I think the line about the golden compasses, though, that was going to be the name of the series, did inspire the alethiometer. That is the inspiration. So the, the publisher, the point is they thought like the first book was called the golden compass, so they just kept calling it that. Right. And calling it that. And then when Philip Pullman was like, actually, it's called Northern Lights, the American publishers were like, can we just keep the Golden Compass, please? They were like, nah. Which feels very appropriate for Americans. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to defend the publisher on this one for the mere fact of, like, the Golden Compass goes better with the names of the rest of the trilogy. Because mm -hmm. it's the Golden Compass, the Subtle Knife, and the amber spyglass. So, like, northern lights, like, that's, it just doesn't go with the other two as well. So, I think that they actually had a stroke of brilliance. And that, that's, it's better. Brilliance is a generous word. I think they lucked out in the structure of the title. But, so, I don't know. It's just strange to me. They purposely miss titled a book somebody else wrote because they're just like we like this one better but again like <laughs> it's the publisher's job to like <laughs> advertise and stuff if they legitimately were like looking at the titles and they're like golden compass is a better title again it is you hear a book called the golden compass you're like oh what is this golden compass i'm more interested in it now uh-huh versus like you hear northern lights and you're like oh, okay it's it's about the aurora uh aurora borealis like that's not that's not exciting yes the reasoning that was given that they just got used to it and didn't want to change the name is stupid yes but i think it's a better title in a number of ways so i'm willing to let it slide i think it's better than um harry potter where they renamed the philosopher's stone the sorcerer's stone because they're like kids won't know what a philosopher <laughs> is when like a, ph a philosopher's stone is like a thing yeah the Philosopher's Stone is a concept that is the exact thing that's being referenced. So, like, if you call it the Sorcerer's Stone, anyhow, that renaming was stupid. They should trust the kids should be smarter. But this renaming is good. And Philip Pullman doesn't seem to be mad about it. He was like, okay, have fun. I mean, the interesting thing about Philip Pullman is that he, when it, like, comes specifically to adaptations, he seems to be really open to mm -hmm. people making changes for the work to be better. Yes. He doesn't think his word is God. Uh, very appropriately does not think so. Yeah. I think it's fascinating because I do think he vacillates between having like 
the strongest of all possible opinions. Yes. And having like zero opinion at all. But to to go back very briefly, because we've now spent, what, five minutes <laughs> talking about the title. I will say that perhaps Northern Lights would have been more appropriate, not just because the Northern Lights are very much featured in this book, but because as the more boring title, perhaps it's fitting for the most boring book of this series. I think we're about to have a, a disagreement, Casey. I know this is shocking and unexpected, <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> this is a good segue into our, our feelings. Indeed. And I think this is nice. It's the first one in a while where we both read this as a kid. Yeah. So it's kind of nice that we're both having that reread experience again. And so, yeah, I reread I read this as a kid at like age, God, who knows, sometime in middle school. I wasn't super young, but I wasn't super old either. Read the first book and liked it a lot. Certainly darker than like what I was expecting going in. And, like, I'm sure, as for a lot of kids, the darkness of this book came as a shock because, like, the cover I had, at least, which I think is the most common American cover, mm -hmm. is, like, this very pretty, like, a painting of a, like, little girl on a polar bear. <laughs> it's, like, very charming and very sweet looking. And it really conveys absolutely nothing of how <laughs> dark uh -huh. this book gets. The end of the book, for many people... And that kind of makes the whole book and certainly was a big shock to me at the time, mm. but really enjoyed it. And then I read the second and the third book back to back on a car drive or was, were they both on a car drive on the same car drive? That seems really fast even for me. <laughs> and maybe it was a longer trip, but it was a, my family and I used to go up to like ski in the mountains and it was a three hour drive. And I definitely read the third book in one go on that trip. And I believe it was right after reading the second book. So maybe I'd been reading the second book back at home. And then I started on the third. But I remember like, so it was getting darker and I was racing because we weren't allowed to turn the lights on in the car. So I was racing to finish this book before the light went and I couldn't see the book anymore and I had to wait. So uh, I remember this frantic rush to finish it. And I think part of that may have been part of the reason why, like, the rest of the series, and I guess this is an overview of my feelings on the whole series, but I think it's important for context. I was a little confused by some of the things at the end, I think, because I was just, like, trying to finish it. I was also sobbing the entire time. <laughs> very rarely, like, I do read books and cry, but, like, very rarely am I, like, sobbing while reading. The third book was just, like, tears the whole way. How did and your parents respond to a, their child crying I, in the back seat? I think I was being pretty quiet and it was getting dark. Uh -huh. And they were like doing some talking or playing music. I was very much in my own world reading this book, you know. Uh -huh. So I I don't remember. Like, I think my sister who was next to me was probably watching a movie. It, no one seemed to have noticed <laughs> until later on when they were like, <laughs> Morgan, why are you a wreck? <laughs> I have reread the first book multiple times since my first reading of it. I have never reread the second or the third book. What? Because I did not I did not like them. And I'm very interested, like I think our plan with this series is actually to do the full series. Yes. We've been meaning to do this series since like since Chronicles the origin of story of this pod. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which was like what caused us to start this podcast and everything. So we're, we're going to do the whole series. And I'm very interested to see books two and three in the light of adulthood because I think I'll like them better. But I think this book for me as a kid really balanced 
the darkness of the subject material with like having lighter moments and not like getting bogged down in that. And I think as a kid, books two and three were just too dark and too much for me. I wasn't there for it. I especially the ending of the third book, I think I, along with many other children my age, I consider that to be the most devastating ending of anything (laughs) I have ever read, watched, anything. Nothing has topped the ending of that third book for me in terms of like emotional wreckage. Mm -hmm. I think that was another big reason I never went back and did it because I just, I could, it wasn't, it wasn't even that I thought it was a bad ending. It felt earned and stuff, even at that age. It was just like so deeply not an ending I wanted or had any desire Mm. to read. And it was emotionally devastating, like I said. And uh, I was just like, not there for it. For me, uh, this is the book I remember the best, obviously, because I read it a bunch of times. It was really pleasant coming back to it. I don't find this a boring book in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. I think there's like something strange about it structurally. Mm -hmm. Not in a way I'm necessarily bothered by, but it is, it doesn't quite feel like you would normally expect a novel to feel structurally it's just kind of doing its own little thing i think that was what i really noticed coming back to it is i was like oh yeah philip pullman just fully was like ah forget the three-act structure or or, (laughs) you know anything like that we're just gonna like do things at whatever pace i decide to do them but like i again really enjoyed it coming back i think that i found um the characters a little less engaging coming back. I was a little less invested in them because mm-hmm. I felt like I was kept further from them than I remember being kept as a kid. And certainly there was so much about the theological discussions and things like that that I enjoy much more as an adult and also someone who's read Paradise Lost. Um, <laughs> so I think that like nothing really shocked me per se, but it was definitely a, a different perspective. But I think. I I liked it, I guess, a little bit less than I did as a kid, but generally still hugely positive feelings. Uh, reread it in one day was had a lovely time. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I think. Uh, well, let's see. When did I read this? It was in high school. I think it was either sophomore year or junior year of high school that I read it. And the I guess I'll spoil it spoil it since you gave your kind of brief overview of the whole series. The second book was actually my favorite book of the series. Huh. We'll get more into this when we discuss that book, but there's something about the the role of the knife that I found very fascinating. But I'll save that for next time. The first book was the one that stuck with me the least, and I never really bothered to examine why until rereading it for the first time ever. And I and I think I know why. Because, man, the political intrigue in the first half of this book makes the Star Wars prequel trilogy seem like a fantastic space romp. The, the, fr- <laughs> the first chapter alone name drops seemingly hundreds of different people and things and concepts, and, and you have no clue what any of it's referring to and it all kind of gets expounded later on throughout the novel but expounded in a way that I found extremely grating 
they have this conversation at the beginning where they name drop all these things. And then a chapter later, two people will be having a conversation and being like, oh, uh, Bobby McBob Bob, you know, that name was mentioned. Who who was that again? And they keep doing that for basically every single concept. And it was just very annoying for me. And I, and I hear what you're saying about, like, the structure is weird for this book. And I think that's also something that was grating for me, where the pacing of the book felt really off. And I don't think there's really anything you can do about that. It's just personal preference thing. Pullman's a great writer, but he, I don't think he can, well, pull that off <laughs> as as well as other writers. I think that, like... um I know he he doesn't like being compared to him, but J.R.R. Tolkien was much better at filling out his very deliberate pace and making it work Mm. within the world that he was building. Pullman doesn't quite do it for me. I know I realize I'm sort of like listing my grievances with this book right now. (laughs) I I don't mean to do that because I do think they're are a lot of aspects that are very interesting about this book, but I can't, I guess I just want to front load it now. The pacing feels stilted. The way new information is introduced feels very awkward and contrived. And, and yeah, there are just certain things that really didn't resonate with me with this book. I, I did appreciate the darker bits, obviously. <laughs> and not to be farcical about it because i do think that he he earns those dark bits in this book he really sets it up and really doesn't turn away from it Mm. and i think that's very important because i guess we should put it just put it out right now that um i don't think he's ever publicly said that this book this series is a response to chronicles of narnia wait i can get into this i've done my research please so he in fact i believe disavows that but it is so clearly a response to chronicles of (laughs) narnia even if it's subconsciously um he's given three things as influences one is obviously paradise lost and he very much views the series as a rewriting of Paradise Lost, mm. which it is. There's just a lot of Chronicles of Narnia in there, too. <laughs> um, and then, like, a short story, German short story, which I scanned yesterday, obviously, translated in English. That that seems to be where he got the idea for the... Oh, God. I'm going to butcher how their pronu- name is pronounced, but the basically Ice Bears. Pengerborn? <laughs> Pengerborn? <laughs> we'll go with ice bears i'm sure there's some nordic way of pronouncing it but there it looks like panzerborns yeah he seems to have gotten that from there and then also something about like um losing innocence and re- trying to regain innocence and then there's uh, like one other thing which i didn't look into but um he does not list chronicles of narnia as an influence and he absolutely hates narnia he hates the narnia books he thinks they are the worst I'm going to literally just, he wrote a, <laughs> a piece for like the uh, centenary of C.S. Lewis's birth and it's called The Dark Side of Narnia and he just like goes into it. He is there to just like murder it because <laughs> he's like, um, 
But there's no doubt in the public mind that what matters is the Narnia cycle, and that is where the puzzle comes, because there is no doubt in my mind that it is one of the most ugly and poisonous things I've ever read. So he, you know, just talks about essentially the uh, misogyny, racism, and then what he calls that sadomasochistic relish for violence that permeates the whole cycle. And he especially unloads on, obviously, the ending of Last Battle and the idea that like it's better for these children to be dead yeah (laughs) and the whole susan moment so he is just super anti-narnia and i I will say here too i did not know this until i was doing research he also just thinks the lord of the rings is like drivel (laughs) a fool but an honest fool he remains as much as he hates the comparison to narnia it's so clearly responds to the extent that in the first chapter of this book, our main character goes and hides in a wardrobe. I'm sorry, you're trying not to, like, evoke that in my mind? It was so clearly, she talks about getting one of, like, the fur coats down to sit on. Right. And she's, again, hiding from the adults because she's in a place she's not supposed to be. This is, like, the exact setup for the beginning of Chronicles of Narnia. And then she, too, in this moment, she doesn't actually travel to another world at this point. But she is suddenly, this moment sets her on the path that will lead her to other worlds and opens her eyes to some elements of the broader world. And so I don't think there's any way you cannot look at this series as a response to Chronicles of Narnia, even if a subconscious one. So, yes, he disavows that. Pullman would argue with me, but I say, (laughs) no, Phil, no. (laughs) Your text is doing the talking here. It's very clearly commenting as well. And this is not an idea that's unique to C.S. Lewis, but Pullman is commenting on this idea of losing one's quote-unquote innocence, growing from childhood into adulthood, and how oftentimes, especially within fantasy or fairy tale type stories, that's framed as a bad thing. Growing up is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. Adults suck. The adult world sucks. So just die already, kids, before it gets really bad. Philip Pullman is uh, more grounded, I suppose, is the way to describe it. And that he views adulthood as a very, not only is it an inevitable change, but it's a very necessary change. And it's something that we should celebrate. And he's Mm -hmm. definitely, he sees a lack in the world of fantasy, I think that's also part of his critique against Lord of the Rings is that he sees as a, I think he referred to it as infantile. Yeah. Which is like, okay. There's another element to Philip Pullman. I'm glad you read a quote from that article because he definitely has a kind of like edgy meme lord aspect <laughs> to him that yes. is also very grating because he is very prominently an atheist it's not it doesn't like come through too much in this first book but you can definitely tell he doesn't like organized religion. Yes. The primary antagonist which kind of operates in the background this whole time for the first book is called the magisterium which is seems based on the catholics or and specifically the organized institution of catholicism not the religion itself. He's not a fan of that sort of thing, which ironically he shares in common with C.S. Lewis 
but basically on everything else, they disagree. And then also, it's not explicit in this book. It will be explicit in later books. But sexuality plays mm-hmm. a very huge role. And it's it's hard to not see that as a response to C.S. Lewis's, I suppose, asexual narrative uh, within the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, and it was certainly, like, you kind of brushed on this, but the overt religiousness of Chronicles of Narnia is also, yeah, being pushed against here. It's so funny. So there's this one uh, critic of the series, like, there's been a lot of Christian, like, push back against of this, the, his dark materials because they're like, ah! And one of them <laughs> is like, it's atheism for kids! Mm. So this is Bill Donahue, uh, then president of the Catholic League in 2007. And he says, atheism is screwy enough, but when it is sold backdoor to little kids, it's downright <laughs> pernicious. And all I was thinking reading this quote was that isn't that exactly what Chronicles of Narnia is? Like, backdoor Christianity being sold to little kids? Right. So it's, like, wild to me, the hypocrisy yes. of this. But I will say, I also want to pull the, like point this out, just because I was like, oh, this is cool. One of the nice things about Philip Pullman is that as much as he's, like, super opinionated and does have these kind of edgelord comments, <laughs> he does seem willing to, like, have dialogues. He just is going to be very opinionated and you probably won't change his mind. But, like, he's not going to, like, I don't know, scream at you. But this guy who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, his name's Rowan Williams, he was actually pro the series. He said that the books were instructive and that they're actually, you know, showing the dangers of... Not organized religion per se, but that sort of like overly aggressive, controlling version of organized religion. And he full on was like, yeah, these should be taught. These books should be taught in religious classes, which is like crazy. I mean, like, I agree with him. I think it's good to like, look at what you don't want to be. (laughs) If you're going to be like, you know, doing organized religion. And they actually had a full-on public discussion, Pullman and uh, this, at the time he was Archbishop of Canterbury. So I was like, that's cool. Yeah, I I would also add to that that I think it's always good to read perspectives that you don't necessarily agree with just to get a sense of how other people look at your religion or what if your belief system. It doesn't even... And I, and I think Pullman, in uh, some of his public comments, makes a very... When he says religion, he also applies that to systems that we wouldn't necessarily consider religious. So, for example, he called the Soviet Union under Stalin's rule a religious governmental system because it's more getting at this idea of a tyrannical perspective that doesn't allow questioning. And we see that, definitely in this book, with the exception of a few key characters, everyone really tiptoes around what they can and can't say because there's always the looming threat that the magisterium can come in and shut things down, or worse. Right. I mean, and they reference briefly, it's like very much seems like a world in which the sort of Catholic dominion over... Europe never ended or waned, like Protestantism didn't happen. 
And therefore, it continued to just be this massively powerful presence. And then as they spread over the globe, it continued to be so. But, you know, there is a reference in here about, like, they were thinking of bringing back the Inquisition. Yeah. So, like, you know, that (laughs) beyond what we see, which is horrific, there are other, like, well-known events of the church, the magisterium coming in and physically <laughs> yeah doing a torture indeed it is no bueno yeah i am so f-ing excited to talk about this book with you but i think before yes. we keep talking further about it because that's <laughs> what we're doing right now let's get to the summary yeah <laughs> summary time so we open in oxford with this girl lyra and she is sneaking in to this secret scholar-only room. They call them scholars instead of professors. And uh, her demon... How do I say his name? Phantom Mil- God. We can call him it's Pan so from now on. Because that's what yeah. Lyra calls him. For, uh... Yeah. <laughs> Pantalimon, I think. And for those of you who haven't read the series and are are like, demon? She has a little demon following her? The power of Christ compels you! Basically, in this world, which is an alternate version of ours, everyone has what they call a demon, which is this little animal companion, essentially. They're born with them, they die with them, and when they're kids, they can change around a lot, but as everyone grows older and matures and kind of comes into themselves... Their demon will pick one particular animal shape that best reflects them and stay that their entire lives. Uh, Lyra is still young enough that Pan is constantly shifting. The other thing worth mentioning, I think, I don't know if it's really going to be relevant, at least for this book, but demons are usually the opposite sex of their person. There's one exception that's mentioned in this book. But nothing is done with it, so I don't know really what to make of it. So I don't think it's that important for us, at least. Yeah, that's one of the other sort of general things. And then demons also just can only go a certain distance from humans. But anyhow, Lyra sneaks into this room where she's not supposed to be and then ends up having to hide (laughs) in a closet (laughs) when she hears people coming. And it turns out Lord Asriel, uh, Lyra's uncle, is going to be showing up and doing a presentation for some of the other Oxford scholars. And so the master of the college is there to kind of oversee things. And when the servants, one of the servants steps out to like ready some stuff, he uh, pours some poison into a wine specially opened for Lord Asriel. So then the master of the college leaves, Lord Asriel's brought in, and then the servant leaves, and Lyra's like, oh, what do I do? And then... Lord Asriel looks like he's about to drink the wine. And I was like, no, don't do it. It's poison. (laughs) And Lord Asriel is honestly not as grateful as he could have been for this intervention. He's like, you're not supposed to be here. Get back in the closet. (laughs) I think he literally threatens to break her arm or something like that. It's like, whoa, buddy. Yes. You immediately get the sense that theirs is not a warm and loving relationship. (laughs) And he's this like big guy. His uh, demon is a snow leopard. Like he's, I saw one review of the book describe him as Byronic. That's kind of an idea of him. So he get, tells Lyra to hide back in the closet, and when one of the servants comes in to set up a projector for him, 
Lord Azrael contrives to make it look like the servant knocked over the bottle of wine so he can, you know, discreetly not be poisoned. Then a whole bunch of scholars comes in and he gives a presentation to them on something called dust. They're not really sure what dust is, but they know that it's something that, like, can't be seen by the naked eye, but seems to cluster around humans, and specifically adult humans. Uh, it's not really interested in uh, children. He also demonstrates that there is another city in the Aurora Borealis that can be seen if you take, like, photographs with a specific type of lens. He wants, basically, funds for an expedition to go up north and further investigate dust and this phenomenon. Uh, he gets the money to do so. And, like, <laughs> barely says goodbye to Lyra and still, like, doesn't really thank her <laughs> before he pieces out. And Lyra's like, what did, what was all of that? And I should mention here that this book and the series in general are not in Lyra's first-person perspective. Uh, it's in third person, and it's a third person, I will say not omniscient, but it does that, like, head-hopping thing where sometimes we're very close with Lyra, and then sometimes we're hanging out with some other people. So, like, after this whole thing happens, we do see the master of the college and one of the other scholars talk a little bit, and I think this is one of the moments you were referencing, <laughs> where they kind of yes. unpack a little bit of what was discussed in the presentation. And this is where we're told that Lyra has some kind of destiny, and it's not, we're not told really what, other than she's very important, and she has to fulfill this destiny, whatever it is, without knowing what she's doing. Like, no one can tell her that she has this destiny. We piece for a little bit and learn about, like, Lyra's time in Oxford. Supposedly her parents are dead, um, and she's just kind of left here and haphazardly raised by the scholars and the servants. And she spends most of her time just running around, getting into fights with other children, and she spends a lot of time with her best friend, the kitchen boy, Roger. And she gets into lots of scrapes with, like, the Oxford children against the townies, and then they unite when the Egyptians come into town. And the Egyptians in this world are these kind of, like, water-drilling nomadic people. They're very clearly somewhat inspired by uh, Romani people. Those are kind of the factions that play in the city, and we get to get to know Lyra a little bit and what's going on before the introduction of what are called the Gobblers, a group of people that are stealing children. No one knows who they are. No one knows how they're getting the children. So there's, like, lots of wild speculation. But we, the reader, get to see one of these abductions take place, this kid named Tony. We're shown Tony's abduction in which he's like running an errand and this lady who seems very sweet and lovely is like, hey, do you want chocolate? And so he's like, yeah, I want chocolate. And so she leads him to this place where there's a bunch of other children. And she's like, I brought you here because there's something really special we need you to do. So we're going to like take you someplace so you can help with this very special mission. And they're all like, yeah, sure. Because she just seems like the sweetest and the nicest. And it also seems like she has some, like, for lack of a better term, some magical power that she has that gives her a special kind of influence over these kids. It's called being a pretty white woman. Well, okay. I think it's a little more than that, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it, like... She's utilizing sort of like white female privilege is really right. what it feels like. She's 
knows how to portray herself as very innocent and sweet and warm. I guess I would push against the idea that there's any kind of magical power. I would say that in this world, it seems like as well as in ours, white women for the most part are considered like the least threatening of thing you could be. Yeah. <laughs> and she utilizes that and as well as her sort of innate charisma. So I I would push back against the idea there's anything magical about it. I think she's just really used to weaponize, really weaponized her looks and her innate charm. Well, I guess, yeah, there there's one particular quality about her that, as you said, demons can't go too far away from their person, but seemingly her demon can. And it's not clear why. I suppose we could discuss that later. We don't talk about it. Anyhow, she like writes little letters to their families for them. And then she like sends them away. And then we're shown her burning the letters. And very important to note that her demon is a golden monkey. So anyhow, back in Oxford, like tales of the gobblers, as they're calling these abductors for no one knows what reason, have like reached Oxford and... <laughs> no one's necessarily taking it super seriously. Like, Lyra literally makes a game out of it. But then the gobblers actually do come to Oxford and kids start disappearing. And one of the first is one of the Egyptian kids, uh, Billy Costa. And he goes missing. Lyra tries to look for him and she can't find him anywhere. And she knows it can't just be that he wandered off. Essentially, in, in Egyptian culture, that just wouldn't happen. So... She's, like, very concerned, and then she gets worried because she hasn't seen Roger for quite a while. So she goes back and discovers she can't find Roger, and everyone's like, it's fine, he'll turn up. Also, you need to get dressed because the master of the college wants to see you. And she's like, Roger! Also, I don't <laughs> like dresses! Or baths! <laughs> and they're like, sucks for you. And she's taken in to dine with the master and some guests he has, one of which is a very pretty woman with a golden monkey demon. Lyra is instantly charmed by this woman. Normally during these dinners, she has a miserable time. She's not a happy camper. Like, she doesn't really want to be talking with adults. She wants to just be, like, set free to roam. But this particular woman, Mrs. Coulter, uh, and she's not, like, a, a stuffy women scholar, which Lyra's like, that's a lesser breed of scholar. <laughs> scholar. But she's actually gone and done things. Like, she's been on an expedition up north, and she has all these exciting stories. And she's actually planning to go to the north again, which is what Lyra wants to do more than anything in the world. Lyra becomes enamored with her. And then after dinner, the master of the college talks to her and is like, hey, how would you like to go live with Miss Coulter? And Lyra's like, that sounds great. The next morning... Lyra is shaken awake very early by a servant who's like, the master wants to see you before you leave. And she's rushed to him, like, in a very secretive way. And he gives her something he calls an alethiometer. And doesn't really get to explain much. He's like, except keep it secret from Mrs. Coulter. Don't tell her. So she's whisked off to London by Mrs. Coulter, where she begins learning about things for this northern expedition they're going to be going on. And also Mrs. Coulter's getting her all new clothing, dressing her up teaching her the ways of being a lady. And so Lyra's is having a good time. But Pan at some point is like, look, when are we going to go? Like, have you forgotten about Roger? Like, I don't think she's ever actually going to take us up north. All she wants to do is, like, groom us into her pet. So as much as Lyra denies that, she can't help seeing that there seems to be some truth in that. And then there is a, a dinner party one night in Mrs. Coulter's place. 
Lyra wants to wear a, like a cute little shoulder bag that she can carry her alethiometer in. And Mrs. Coulter's like, no, you can't wear the bag. It's absurd to wear a shoulder bag inside, Lyra. Like, you're not wearing the bag. And Lyra's like, yes, I am. And this very petty fight descends into physical violence very quick when the golden monkey grabs Pan, starts squeezing him. One of the things with demons is that, like, Lyra can, can feel that. And so she quickly gives in to save Pan, and Mrs. Coulter's like, yeah, no more of this nonsense. You are going to be sweet, and you are going to charm my desk, and I don't want to see any of this attitude anymore. Already, Lyra's very thrown off, and then she goes to the party and overhears people talking about things. And one of the things she overhears is about how the gobblers got their name. Is There's this thing called the General Ablation Board, which is this secret project that is funded by the Magisterium, and they are the ones taking children. That's the main piece, and she learns that Mrs. Coulter was the creator of this project and that she's the one running it, and someone even implies she's going to planning to use Lyra to lure in further children. And she also finds out that the golden monkey has been snooping around in her room, so she's like, we're getting out of here, Pan. And Pan's like, yes, we are. So they <laughs> run away. Some people try and capture her, but then she's saved by the Egyptians, the same family of Egyptians that she was familiar with from Oxford, and they take her in, and they are planning to do something about getting the children back. And there's this general, like, huge meeting. I'm not sure if it's, like, all the Egyptians or just the ones that are in England, kind of unclear. But this organized mm-hmm. meeting that is run by their head, and his name is John Fa, and he asks them for, like, money and men to fund this trip to get the children. They've discovered the children are being taken up north, so they're planning to go north, rescue the children. And he also asked to speak after this, um, one of the first meetings there, he asked to speak with Lyra. He and Father, I can't say his, I can't say this name right. Every time I try and say it, I get it wrong. Can you just say the name so that I can mimic what you say? Yeah, let me just pull it up very quickly. <laughs> Farder Coram? Farder Coram. Like, I just can't. Like, the words in my mouth, it feels like chewing on something. It sounds like Father. Yeah, it's like Farder Farder cor- Coram. God. Farder Coram. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so he and Farder Coram um, revealed to Lyra that her father was not Lord Azrael's brother who died, but Lord Azrael himself. And it's this whole, like, very soap opera saga. So Lord Azrael was doing some research things. He was this very powerful, wealthy dude. And then he uh, fell in love with this lady who was super smart and ambitious. And they had this, like, wild, passionate affair. But the issue was she was kind of married to this <laughs> other dude. <laughs> Just a small problem, you know? Not just kind of married. She was. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, <laughs> but funny. I think for them, she was kind of married. You know, they were like. Right. It's implied later that she married this guy out of convenience, out of uh, her ambition to be powerful because yes. this guy was rich and famous. And right. Whatever. But she, she like, yeah, wasn't that into him. So she ended up getting pregnant and having a baby. And when the baby popped out, it was pretty clear it was not her husband's baby. Scandalous! So she sent the baby away. And Lord Azrael 
took the baby in and basically left the baby with an Egyptian woman working in his house to, like, take care of her. But then the husband found out and, like, went to maybe murder the baby. (laughs) I think strongly implied murder the baby. And he was, like, broke into Lord Azrael's house and, like, the Egyptian woman was took Lyra, because Lyra was the kid, obviously, and was, like, hiding with her again in a closet, I think. Yeah. And Lord Azrael found out and raced back and challenged the dude to a duel and just murdered him pretty hard. Mm. Lord Azrael was stripped of his lands and his money and he still like really wanted nothing to do with Lyra. Her mom, Mrs. Coulter, didn't want anything to do with her. So he just kind of dropped her. Like she was originally placed somewhere else, like in a, I think a nunnery. And uh, Lord Azrael was like, nah. So he just like <laughs> took her and then just deposited her at Oxford. <laughs> no doing anything to actually take care of her. Right. We're told that the Egyptians wanted to take her in and raise her as one of their own. But no, he was like, I'm just going to deposit her in Oxford. Apparently, he told the master at Oxford that she was meant to be kept from her mother, from Mrs. Coulter, at all costs. But essentially, Lord Azriel has now been imprisoned up north by the Panzerer born. So because of that, Mrs. Coulter was free to come into Oxford and take Lyra. And the master wasn't really able to stop her because she's being backed by the magisterium. So this is all revealed to Lyra, as well as what the alethiometer is. The Latin is essentially truth teller. It has four needles, three of which you can set yourself. And these different like illustrations that ring the outside, and then one that moves on its own. So essentially, each of these illustrations has like five million different meanings. They're all contained in like these very rare books. And so essentially, if you know what question you want to ask and you know the meanings of all these symbols, you can place those hands to ask a question and then the meter will swing to different little illustrations to tell you an answer. But the problem is interpreting is super hard because you have to have this book. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go f*** yourself? So she's somewhat bothered by the discovery of her heritage in that she like hates Mrs. Coulter with a passion now. But she very quickly is like, Lord Azrael, my dad, that sounds right. She adjusts like super quickly to all this. Yeah. And so she spends her days just kind of hanging out as Egyptians are organizing their money and their forces. She mostly has to like hide still from the magisterium. But she spends some time, you know, trying to figure out the alethometer. And she discovers that she kind of has this intuitive understanding of it. She starts sort of developing her skill at that. And then when the time comes and the Egyptians have mustered enough forces, she's like, I really want to go with you. But they're like, nah, too dangerous for you. But forces conspire <laughs> so that Lyra is able to go. So she's brought along on the expedition. And so they travel up north. Lyra's like kind of upset because she's being cooped up all the time because people are like seriously looking for her so aggressively. In fact, one time, Quadricorum allows her to go out on the deck for a little bit and just stretch her legs and this like strange buzzing thing starts attacking her and they're able to capture it and they discover it's this like mechanical spelled bug thing it like will track down someone and then just like not give up regardless of everything so they have to trap it in this metal tin and never let it out but they eventually arrive up north with like no further serious incidents and while they're there fodder quorum a while ago had helped out a witch. And witches are a thing in this world. They are not human. 
solely female, and they are incredibly long-lived. They can, like, fly and do magic and And their demons can also go a really far distance from them. So he's like, let's go meet with the witch's consul in this town and see if we can get any assistance there. So they meet with the consul. The consul lets them know about the situation up north where the children are being held. And he also tells them about an armored bear, the ice bear, who is in town that he suggests they hire for their expedition. And he also asks Lyra about the alheometer, and she reveals that she can use it to him. And he ends up having a little conversation with Father Quorum. It's like, the witches have spoken of this child for centuries, that she's meant to come and, like, do this thing, but she can't know what she's doing. And Father Quorum's like, wow. Big wow! This is a lot of information being dumped on me suddenly. <laughs> but they're not able to have a conversation for very long before Lyra comes back in. So from there, they go to recruit the armored bear, and he's like, I can't come with you because the humans here in this town have taken my armor and are forcing me to work for them. The only way I will work for you is if you can get my armor back. They go back that night and have a discussion about getting the bear's armor, but John Paul's like, I don't know, I've heard bad things about this bear. Also, we got this aeronaut dude who's going to help us out. (laughs) He is a Texan named Lee Scoresby. And he also puts in a good word for the bear. He's like, he's a good dude, that bear. But... Lyra's getting the impression that they are not going to go get the bear's armor. And she also, like, she asked the alethiometer, and it's like, yeah, the humans are going to move the armor as soon as they hear about all this. So she asks the alethiometer where the armor is, and then she goes to the bear, whose name is Iorik <sighs> Byronson? Eorik? Yorick, yeah. Oh, just Yorick. If I'd just watched the TV show, I could have solved this problem. I've seen the TV show. I should remember. You should. Jesus. Oh, well. Casey, slacking on the job. Yorick Burnison. She's like, hey, I know where your armor is. They go off. He retrieves the armor. And one of the things she specifically asks him is, like, when she tells him about the armor, she's like, you have to promise, though, that you'll come with us and not, like, harm any of these humans afterwards. So he goes, gets the armor, and uh, they take off. On to the next leg of the trip. They continue to search for the children, and they are nearing the area where they know that the, like, the institution holding the children is. And the lithiometer keeps telling her about this ghost in a nearby village. The Egyptians are like, let's ignore that. Let's focus on the important stuff. But Lyra's like, it wouldn't just be telling me for no reason. I really want to check it out. Can York and I go check it out, and we'll meet back up with you? And they're like, okay. We'll let the child go off with the bear. That's totally fine. (laughs) Yorick and Lyra go to investigate this ghost in this village, and they discover it is a a small boy. He was the one we saw abducted, and he is in not good shape, other than it being, like, freezing, and he's being shunned by the people of the village. He also doesn't have his demon anymore. Instead, he is clutching a little dried fish in its place, and he's like, where's my ratter? I want my ratter back, because that's the name of his demon, ratter. The sight of someone without their demon is one of the most disturbing things. I'll just read the description of it. Her first impulse was to turn and run, or to be sick. A human being with no demon was like someone without a face, or with their ribs laid open and their hearts torn out. Something unnatural and uncanny 
that belong to the world of nightgasts, not the waking world of sense. And I think there's other places where it's described as like somebody without a head. It's it gets repeated over and over that it's just sickening in yeah. every way possible. But Lyra overcomes her aversion to take the child back with her. And they are similarly horrified and have to be essentially talked into. Not talked. York is like, this little girl is showing more bravery than you lot. What the f*** are you doing? But he is he's given help and Lyra passes out after her very stressful, very stressful day. And when she wakes up, he has he has died. So what they've discovered is this is what they're doing at the facility is they're cutting children's demons away. So obviously they're even more motivated now to break the children out because that's this is mutilation. Yeah. They're heading towards it when they are suddenly attacked. I was like, no, what's happening? And she is abducted by their attackers who take her back to the facility. She pretends to be this very dumb girl named Lizzie who is up north with her father. And she's like, we were attacked. And they're like, no, Lizzie, you weren't attacked. You wandered off and you're so lucky we found you. This kind of gaslighting is not even subtle. Like, you really think you can talk her into, like, not having been through a battle in which people were shooting arrows? Like, what? But whatever, they're doing their best. <laughs> well, it is implied that they're not very competent. So that's part of no. it. But I also think it's like, it's setting the tone that this is not a good place, if that wasn't yes. already clear. And it's giving the tone of like this sort of condescending medical institution where they all know better than you and they're smarter than you. And they're just right. going to talk down to you like you're a, a baby who doesn't understand anything. Like, no, sweetie, you didn't get attacked. You wandered off. Very much that nonsense. Uh-huh. Uh, Lyra is taken in and uh, integrated with the rest of the children, where she's very relieved to find both Lily Costa and Roger safe and still with their demons. So she starts making plans with them to do some investigation and then obviously break all the children out. And so one of the things that happens on her first day there is there is a fire drill. And like, like you mentioned, uh, these adults are not very competent, and this fire drill is not very well run. And so Lyra is very easily able to slip away and do some investigation, and she discovers these demons that are, are separated from their humans and being kept in cages. Like, these are the demons of the kids who have been severed. And so she, with the help of a witch's demon who has turned up, frees them and makes plans to use the fire alarm for the escape because the children are also given warm weather clothes during the fire drill and like it gives them the things they need to be able to escape. So she starts spreading that plan around, but then Mrs. Coulter arrives at the facility and Lyra is like trying to avoid her obviously, but that evening she can't resist sneaking out to spy on the adults. So like she sneaks up, through the ventilation system <laughs> to spy on the adults having their meeting and they're talking about the progress of their experiments and they're like, yeah, we have a new way of, of severing the kids. Before they all just died from shock, but we've been able to make some of them last longer and now this new tool, blah, blah, blah. Miss Coulter's like very excited to see this new severing process, um, but also very disappointed with their incompetence and in letting the demons go free. She goes off and... The rest of them stay to, like, basically discuss uh, how much they don't like her. And then 
Lyra makes a sound at something they say, and they discover her up in the ceiling and take her down there. They're like, we have to, like, deal with this right away. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So they, like, drag her off to get severed, and they, they grab onto Pan while they're doing this, which this is another big taboo. You do not touch another person's demon. Demons can touch demons. Humans can touch humans. Humans can touch their demon. But touching someone else's demon is, like, a huge taboo. Again, this is repulsive. And the way that it makes Lyra feel, like, she feels so violated. It reads like a sexual assault. The language is very similar to a sexual assault. So she and Pan are hurried into the room, and they're about to be severed when Mrs. Coulter comes in. And as soon as she sees Lyra, she goes, white. And she's like, stop this at once. And she's like, oh my god, Lyra, how did you get here? What has happened to you? I've been looking for you everywhere. And Lyra comes up with this very elaborate story. And one of the things I haven't mentioned about Lyra is that she just, like, is a compulsive liar. Mm. And (laughs) just comes up with very elaborate (laughs) stories sometimes. So, like, she comes up with this whole thing about how she, the goblins tried to take her. And then she was able to break free of them. And, like, she worked as a barmaid in somewhere and, like, blah, blah, blah. But then ended up getting taken by them again and blah. Which, like, I'm guessing Mrs. Coulter doesn't buy for a second, but we're not told whether or not she does. And then she's like, but what are you doing here? Why are they, like, severing kids from demons? Like, what is going on with this? Mrs. Coulter's like, look, there's this thing called dust. It is bad. Basically, what happens is once a demon settles, then the dust starts coming in. So it's it's the demons that are making this happen. And all you gotta do is just make this little cut. And then you aren't infected with dust anymore, and you're better. Lyra's like, that's bullshit. You're still have your demon, like, and it's killing the kids. And, like, the schooler's like, it's not that bad. Like, you've seen the people at the facility. They've all had it done, and they're fine. And Lyra suddenly realizes, like, all of the workers at the facility had been very kind of, like, their demons have been strange and, like, super non-reactive. And she's like, oh, my God. This is what's been done to them. And... I should say, I think that, again, this is very reminiscent of, like, a lobotomy is what is being metaphorically evoked here. Yeah. So she's, like, super disturbed by all of this. But Mrs. Coulter is is not going to give her time to further argue about this. She's like, so, uh, Lear, do you still happen to have that um, that thing the master of the college at Oxford gave you? No, he shouldn't have given you that. It'd be best if, it, if I just took it. Lyra... Try so that Mrs. Coulter takes this tin that is like alethiometer shaped. And then Mrs. Coulter opens the tin and out flies that little bug thing that she sent after Lyra. And it attacks her in the face. And Lyra gets up and runs and she pulls the fire alarm. And she dashes to get out. And like the children are escaping in mass. They're running through the cold. It's so cold. It's so cold. They're, they're slowly making their way. They're slogging. It's cold. Everyone wants to give up. They have to keep going. <laughs> They're like, being, they can hear people behind them coming. Then the Egyptians are out. They're like, yes, we're saved, we're saved. But then, Mrs. Coulter shows up on like a slide thing, and she grabs Lyra and tries to make off with her, and Roger's trying to beat her off, and Pan's fighting the golden monkey, and it's all very hectic. And then, Yorick is there, and he's fending them off. And then, they're being pulled up into Lee Scoresby's <laughs> balloon. <laughs> The way I'm describing it and how hectic this is, this is how hectic reading those pages is. The action is not necessarily the clearest thing you've ever read. But she, Roger, Yorick, and Lee Scoresby end up in the balloon. And they are they are flying off to 
where the the hands you're born are to rescue Lord Azrael. Also with them are some witches, including Seferina Pekala, who is the witch that Fodder Forum had helped earlier and who is now helping them bring the balloon to where the Panzerborn are. She and Lyra end up talking a little bit about some stuff, including just more about how witches work. But before they're able to reach Panzerborn Central, they are attacked by cliff gas. Oh no. And then the balloon goes down. Oh no. And Lyra is separated. Oh no. And then she is taken by some, some Panzerborn. And she's in prison. I stopped caring a long time ago. And I should mention at this point, she, so the current king of the Panzerborn is, I guess if, if Yorick is Yorick, then he's Jofer. Jofer Ragnason. So he took over more recently. He's known for being like very crafty and cunning. And he's interested in like a modernizing the Panzerborn and making them more human. And he, yeah, just in general is trying to introduce human customs and he's working very closely with the General Ablation Board, and therefore Mrs. Coulter. And one of the things Lyra discovers talking to the other prisoner down there, who is a a scholar who's been in prison for quite a while, is that Mrs. Coulter has come and visited and totally won Yofer over. Like, he's, like, devoted to her. That's part of why they're holding Lord Asriel. And he, Yofer, that he wants to have a demon himself. Lyra's, like, comes up with this scheme. And so she convinces some of the Panzerborn, to take her in front of Yofer. And then she's like, hello, Yofer. I'm your demon. <laughs> well, actually, I'm Yorick's demon. But I want to be your demon. I was created by Miss Coulter and her team for Yorick, but then they got too freaked out to make another one. But I don't like Yorick. I don't want to be his demon anymore. I want to be your demon. And so... Essentially, what you have to do to make me your demon is you have to fight single combat with Yorick. And then the connection will rush from him into you and I'll be your demon. He's like, prove to me you're Yorick's demon. She's like, sure, ask me a question, I'll answer it. He's like, what's the question to answer? I forget which one it is. What was the first animal I killed? Yes. The answer is his father dad yeah so but in order to answer this she's like okay i gotta go do like special private demon things in another room Mm. she goes and uses the alethiometer obviously (laughs) but yes the answer is that he killed his own father and then covered up the murder as one does Uh, to be fair he didn't know it was his father when he was killing him right there's a whole thing in bear culture where the fathers leave after so they don't actually know their fathers and yeah it's not important yes but I think just well, he, he's he not, yeah not he's not a of a, a monster necessarily for that he's a monster for other things. Yes, I mean he did just murder this bear and like cover it up. It's just it wasn't intentional patricide; it was intentional murder. What's the equivalent of patricide manslaughter or something like that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but. <laughs> She goes back and is like, wow, you're even greater than I thought. You killed your own dad. So impressive. He's like, yeah. But basically, uh, York's going to show up in a few hours and she convinces him not to just have a masquerade on site and to fight single combat. And she also convinces him that she needs to pretend to still be on York's side when he gets there. So she's able to, when York gets there, rush over and explain the whole thing very quietly to him so that he knows what's going on. He's like, I'm so excited to fight this guy and murder him. Yorick and Yofer fight single combat, and 
York's not in the best position. He's like, his arm is older. He's been traveling at a pretty big pace to get to Lyra. Like, he's worn out. He hasn't been as well fed for as many years. Yoker's just in a better situation. But York's very smart. And he is able to take advantage of this. And one of the things we learned early on is that armored bears can't, they can't be tricked. But York figures out that because Yofer doesn't, like, want to be an armed bear, he wants to be a human, he's no longer thinking like an armed bear, so he can't be tricked. So, uh, York does this, like, fate thing, and then just totally f***ing demolishes him. He, like, rips the lower <laughs> yeah. half of his jaw off. It's, like, it's nasty. And then afterwards, when he's dead, it's, like, tradition to, like, open up his rich cage and eat his heart. So he does all that. Which, you know, fittingly... If you recall, the description of a person without a demon is a person without their face or with their chest laid open without their heart. Mm. I, I don't know if that was intentional, but it does seem to be a suggestion of like, Yofer has given up his bareness, <laughs> and so he has lost his, his bear soul. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things they talk about Yorick says that his armor is his soul. Right. In the same way a demon is a person's soul. So because Yofer has kind of like renounced the armored bear life, yeah, he is kind of soulless. But yeah, so now Yorick is king of the bears. They're like, all right, awesome. Now time to go get Lord Asriel. So Roger has shown back up at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Roger keeps just like turning up. Indeed. (laughs) Almost like he needs to be there for plot purposes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Roger and Lyra and Yorick and a couple other bears journey to where they're keeping Lord Asriel, which like apparently Lord Asriel, I gotta say, you gotta kind of admire his swagger. And I'm so excited to watch the TV show and watch James McAvoy play him because I'm like, I know you can do this, James McAvoy. I don't think we should continue this conversation. He has managed to get the bears to build him this super nice house at exactly the spot he wants it to be at and like get all the equipment for his laboratory so he can keep doing all of his experiments out there. So he's not like been hindered by being incarcerated (laughs) at all. (laughs) So Lyra shows up and she opens the door and uh, his manservant's servant's like, what are you doing here? And then Lord Astro shows up and he goes white. And he's like, no, I did not ask because this is not what I wanted. Lyra's like, you okay? Like, what? What's going on? I came to rescue you. And she steps forward and reveals that Roger is in the doorway behind her. And Lord Asriel's like, okay, we're good. We're good. We're good. What are you doing here? (laughs) And so they end up having a long father-daughter chat. (laughs) She's like, aren't you happy I'm here? Like, why why are you the worst? Why are both my parents the worst? But they end up having a longer talk about uh, dust and what's going on with that and basically all the political shit that's been happening. And I will say, I think this is, this was as a kid, my favorite part of the book, their conversation. I still find it really great. And there's um this great moment where uh, Lord Azra goes like, yeah, so everyone's pretty sure that dust is like original sin, part of why the Magisterium are so frightened of it and want to get rid of it. And... He, like, reads from their version of the Bible, and it shows that, like, one of the things that happens after Adam and Eve eat apples is that their demons settle. And so that's part of why there's this religious, or, like, wanting them to separate them from the demons, because they're, like, the demons are also, like, this manifestation of virtual sin. Mm-hmm. He also talks about how he wants to make a bridge to this other world, 
that you can see in the Aurora Borealis. He says some other stuff, including that, you know, the Magisterium, they were so small-sighted. Like, they really didn't get the big picture. Like, they were focused so much on this severing process that they didn't even realize that, like, when you severed someone from a demon, there's this huge explosion of energy. <laughs> Later on, unrelated, it would take this huge explosion of energy to, like, create a bridge <laughs> <laughs> to this other world. It's a good conversation. Like, in terms of laying out information, I think it's a really good conversation, in my personal opinion. So, anyhow, Lyra goes to bed uh, after being, like, disappointed that her father is not a good father or even necessarily a good person, <laughs> but also being, like, I'm very impressed by his, like, ambition and just the amount he is undeterred by anything. Like, this is a man who makes it happen. Quite literally, because she is shaken awake, again, in the middle of the night, and his manservant's like, oh my god, I think he's gone crazy, you have to go after him. She's like, what's going on? He's like, he's taken the boy, and I think he's gonna go, like, do something horrible. And he's like, I guess Lord Asriel has basically, this is what I was referencing earlier, like, this power that he's discovered, where if he, like, wants something enough, it will kind of just be brought to him. Mm -hmm. And he needed a child to finish his work, and so he was wanting for a child to be brought to him. And so he was so horrified when Lyra showed up because one thing he needs to do is he needs to sever a child and their demon to, like, open up this gateway to this other world. And uh, I will say this for <laughs> Lyra's parents. Um, they at least don't want to do that to their own child. <laughs> They'll do it to other children. But they don't want to sever Lyra from her demon. <laughs> And that is the most lackluster compliment I could give them, but there it is. <laughs> so he was very relieved when Roger turned up. So Lyra wakes York and they go racing off to catch up, but then a rival witches attack and Mrs. Coulter flies up to attack. Lyra has to go the last bit of the leg on her own and she finds uh, Lord Azrael and Roger. Roger hasn't been severed yet, so they're fighting Lord Azrael. They're fighting him. But then... <laughs> Lord Azrael ends up being able to sever Roger from his demon. Roger dies, like, instantly. And Lyra is, like, lying there. And who should roll up but Mrs. Coulter and not see her there? <laughs> um, and Mrs. Coulter <laughs> and Lord Azrael just start making the f*** out. <laughs> <laughs> this says a lot about them as people. Uh -huh. And I will say, I, I love their dynamic. I think it is so fun. I'm like, there's real respect for each other because he's like, Marissa, come with me to the other world. Like, leave them all behind. They don't appreciate you. They're constantly squashing you down because you're a woman. You could be so much more. Let's go. And he's like, making the moves on her while this happens. And the really funny thing, when humans get it on, their demons also kind of get it on. Mm. So like, <laughs> the snow leopard and the golden monkey are like, rolling around together but like just imagine it's just weird uh, <laughs> but she's like no I can't I can't go I can't go with you and he's like if you don't go with me I don't care about you anymore <laughs> she's like no I can't go and he's like mm, okay then and he just pieces out of that gateway he totally is ignoring the fact that his child is still over there he's like you're not important to me anymore either and Mrs. Coulter doesn't notice her there so she just sadly turns around and walks off so Lyra's there with the dead body of her best friend and having witnessed that whole nonsense. 
imagine it it's just the worst of both worlds your best friend's dead in your arms and you just watched your parents have sex they they didn't have sex but yes they got they did some very <laughs> sexual making out and she's like you know what we're gonna stop him <laughs> because he also wants to like lord asriel also wants to like go destroy dust he wants to get to the heart of things and destroy dust and they're like she's like you know what if mrs coulter wants to destroy dust and lord asriel wants to destroy dust this is also probably like a good thing. Let's go and let's prevent him from doing this. So they decide to cross over the gateway as well into this other world. And that's where the book ends. And that was, again, a very long summary. But this book has a lot that happens in it. So I did my best to trim it down. I will say this about Philip Pullman. He is a very clever man. And it really just starts with the name of Lyra's character which didn't click for me until this read, where her name is, I think, her given name is Lyra Bellacroix. So as you said earlier, Lyra is a compulsive liar. Liar, Lyra. And then Bellacroix is, from what I can tell, he's making a relatively obscure reference to Dante's Inferno to one character who's very, very lazy, but also extremely witty. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But it's like bits and pieces here and there in this story that I really appreciated that it's very clever. And sometimes it does feel like he's just making references for the sake of references. So he, he, even he cannot resist that temptation. <laughs> but it does feel like in a lot of cases, he's trying to say something more. So Really, the first time we see Lyra is her sitting in a wardrobe spying on this meeting between the Master of Oxford and Lord Asriel and a bunch of scholars. And that feels like a very pointed thing where, obviously, in the Chronicles of Narnia, going into the wardrobe is an escape into another world. And here, it's... <laughs> It's kind of the opposite, where rather than entering into another world, it allows her to enter into her own world a little bit more, if that makes sense. This is a thing that's reiterated throughout, is that the Magisterium loves its secrets. The people at Oxford love their secrets. And when you combine that love of secrecy with a general condescending attitude towards kids, you generally have a bunch of very interesting parts of the world being locked off from these kids. So entering the wardrobe is her chance to actually get a glimpse into what all the adults seemingly know in this world. And that's cool. That's a very cool twist on a thing that makes a very pointed commentary about what Pullman thinks about C.S. Lewis's perspective on all this. If that wasn't already clear already, given his polemic that he wrote about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. But it's just these little details that are, they're really dense in what they're trying to say. And it's so fun to kind of dissect it a little bit and look at all these different parts and how they're playing together, how they build into this larger story of a kid basically moving from naive child into, uh, I guess, wizened teenager 
I don't know if the eight, her age is ever given. I believe she's tw- 11. The beginning. But I could be okay. wrong on that. But there is a sense that as the story goes along, she becomes more and more adult-like. So she she's a very mature 11-year-old by the end of the book. I mean, she has seen some sh- as you said in like the last 50 pages of this book. She has just seen a bear rip a f***ing bear's jaw off and heart out. She has seen her parents making love over the corpse of her best friend. She's seen children without their demons. It is rough. But a thing I appreciate is that it never feels like... So Lyra is kind of a precocious child. Uh, she's kind of a bit of a prodigy, especially when it comes to the alethiometer. And there's this whole destiny bit that I'm yes. not a fan of. But that's another story. At the same time, I think the narrative really goes out of its way to emphasize that she is still at heart a child. There's a thing when adults write children, when they do it badly, they end up in one of two camps. Either the child is basically an adult, but just in a child's body, or the child is just so infantilized. It's just like, <laughs> it's it's like baby talking, basically. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Lyra never feels like either of those things. She always feels like a child. She just feels like a child who's learning and is curious and is growing throughout the process of this book. Mm-hmm. I love that so, so much. And I feel like, especially when you contrast that to something like the Chronicles of Narnia, there's like a very pointed passage where Philip Pullman just grabs you by the collar and shakes you and says, the adults think all the kids are stupid and dumb, but actually their world is very political and there's a lot that's happening if you just bother to examine. And you can really get that sense of respect that Pullman has for children. This story would not work without it. And I'm going to rip into this book because I think it has problems that really annoy me. But I do want to just start off by saying that. Yeah, so I I definitely agree that, like, in the, again, grand tradition of children's literature with female heroines, Lyra is so much more in the vein of a Meg Murray than she is of a Lucy. Right. And in fact, again, she seems to be kind of talking back against Lucy. Like, she is... She is a rapscallion. She is like, <laughs> is the, a liar. She is like super feisty and headstrong. And she has these moments of beautiful kindness and compassion. Mm. And when you were looking at names, I wanted to look up uh, Pantalimon. 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 Yeah. Pantalimon. <laughs> Pantalimon's name. It's all compassion, because Pan is all, so it's all compassion in Greek. And I wanted to look it up also, because, like, he goes by Pan, so that means his nickname is All, which I think is, like, interesting. But I also was like, I don't think this is intentional, but maybe it's a little intentional. But just because, like, so much is ripping off of Paradise Lost, the fact that, like, he has a Pan name and Satan's dwelling place in hell is Pandemonium. Uh... all confusion right so like all confusion and all compassion there's just something there there's something going on there (laughs) but 
you're like, she has these moments of beautiful compassion, like for Tony, for Yorick, like she gets these moments uh, of deep compassion, but she also gets moments of like being a kid who at heart is not, there's something kind of innately selfish about childhood. I mean, there's something innately selfish about being human, but like selfish about being a kid and that you don't necessarily realize like the broader ramifications of things, or it's kind of hard to see beyond you because you haven't had as much experience and therefore you don't realize as much. You might not realize how much your parents are doing for you because, like, well, not in Lyra's case, obviously. They're doing nothing for her. (laughs) But, like, you know, for most of us that had decent parents, we come to expect that and we're not, we're kind of selfish in that we don't see the sacrifices they might be making, Mm -hmm. right? But, like, there's this uh, moment when she's with Mrs. Coulter back, like, when she still thinks Mrs. Coulter's the best. The narrator talks about how, like, she just... Roger's again been kidnapped, but like that's kind of been put aside for her. Like she mm. still thinks about it sometimes, but she'll be like, oh, yes, I'm going to go rescue him. And she's not, it's kind of hard for her to see beyond the immediate circumstance of like right. she's having a great time and she's really excited. And one of the ways you see her growing is realizing, yeah, the broader ramifications of things and her actions. She even has a moment where she's like, you know, if we hadn't, if I hadn't saved Lord Asriel, this wouldn't have all happened. That seeing that growth is really great and seeing her get to be like, she is likable and that I think we like Lyra, but like, Mm -hmm. she's not like Lucy likable. She's not like this lovable, very sweet child who's downtrodden and you like want to like help her (laughs) find her voice. Lyra's got a voice and she's not afraid to use it. I'll say this too, that I think is great. Like you definitely see the resemblance to both her parents. And I, I, if I remember correctly, this will get expounded upon in the next two books. But, like, the way she's able to take those traits that they've used in negative ways and start using them in positive ways and be a better person than her parents. She's, like, got charisma. She's got some of their, like, domineering, ambitious attitudes. She's headstrong and, like, not willing to back down. And that's, like, very much something you see in both of her parents. Their family dynamic family quote unquote like <laughs> I, I is one of the things I, I also want to call out is just being like a, such an interesting dynamic and so much is able to be conveyed about them as people in, in so little and you know one of my criticisms at the beginning which I'll stick by uh, I remember liking characters more because I felt like I've said this before I'll say it again I'm sure but like books feel longer when you're younger and therefore, it felt like I was spending more time with these characters and getting to know them better than, like, we actually do. Certainly, there are characters I feel like we get to know decently well, like Fodder Corum. But, like, I felt like I didn't get as close to Lyra and Pan. Especially Pan. I was like, Pan's, like, not as much a part mm. of this book as I remember him being. Like, I remember being closer to them than I got this time. So I, I was a little disappointed on Riri to find that I, I wasn't as tight. But that said, I do think Philip Pullman does a really good job of establishing people's characters very quickly and strongly. You definitely get a sense of who people are super fast. Even in terms of some of his more complicated characters, the Mrs. Coulters and the Lord Azrael's, the fact that he's able to establish that sort of complexity in them, they're not not morally gray. They're just bad people. But they're (laughs) complicated. He does it really well and really fast. Yeah, I want to praise him on his character work on that front. I think the downside is I read an interview with him where he was talking about like the third person narrator he uses and how he considers that a crucial 
part of uh, being a writer is establishing this sort of third person narrator who is their own character in a way. Uh, and I think he brought up um, George Eliot's Middlemarch and how the narrator is a character in that. And I'm sure we could come up with other examples. I agree that that third person narrator can be a character and like a very crucial I found in this particular circumstance that it just kept me distant from the characters in a way I didn't love. I also, it's interesting because like it does allow the head hopping, which is really nice in some circumstances, but I also think it serves as a bit of a narrative cheat tool. Yeah. And so I liked it in some places and didn't like it in others. The complicated thing is that he places this huge importance on this idea that Lyra has this destiny she has to fulfill without knowing she's doing it. If we were st- like only in Lyra's head, which would be my general preferred way of having this story happen, I'm generally like you, in to do this sort of head hopping, there needs to be a real good justification for it, or I just want to sit with one character and only right. know what they know. Because I find it kind of annoying sometimes to know things characters don't know. Like, I find it annoying that we know Mrs. Coulter is a bad guy before Lyra mm. even meets her. I would prefer for that to be something we find out with her. I'm irritated by the fact that we don't. But why I think it's necessary is because there is this idea that, like, Lyra has this fate she can't know about. And I think Philip Pullman is kind of also trying to talk about fate a bit. And there's this really interesting discussion, part of the discussion between Seferina, the witch, and Lee Swarsby, the airman, and having the discussion on Lyra's fate, but on fate in general. Leah's saying, like, you talk about destiny as if it was fixed, but, like, what about free will? And she says, "Uh, we are all subject to the fates, but we must all act as if we were not or die of despair. So, um, and then she goes on to say, though there's a curious prophecy about the child, she's destined to bring about the end of destiny, but she must do so without knowing what she's doing, as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do it. If she's told what she must do, it will all fail. Death will sweep through all worlds. It will become the triumph of despair forever. The universes will all become nothing more than interlocking machines, blind and empty of thought, feeling, life. So I think because Pullman is trying to do this thing about, <laughs> about destiny and fate and like have that conversation going, that's why the narrator has to be there so that we can see things outside of Lyra. Uh-huh. But I do think it is to the detriment of this book. Oh, wow, you covered a lot of different things in that. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. I just started going and then didn't stop. I feel that's appropriate with this book. It is going 100 miles per hour, and then it'll just suddenly veer off in different directions really, really quickly. To add one last bit about Lyra that I appreciated, because I do think this book, like you were saying, it, how it paints the the bad guys it doesn't really paint anyone with broad strokes, but it's the same way with the with our heroes or presumptive heroes. One thing I really appreciated is how Lyra's worst qualities are also her best features. So the fact mm-hmm. that that she is a liar and there are times when she gets called out for her bullshit, but it also earns her the very sweet title from Yorick of Lyra Silvertongue because she manages to trick Yofer which is no small feat. I know that Yofer is kind of operating at a disadvantage because he wants to be human. Theoretically, it's still quite an achievement for a human to trick a bear. And we do, the only instance that we see a, a bear being tricked is Yorick, but he's drunk AF, and he's been basically made drunk by the human 
residents of the town they find him in. So the fact that Lyra is such a good liar, it's something to be celebrated. And I think that this book really makes a point of that. There's this very interesting passage that seems like a criticism against Lyra. I, I don't really know quite how to read it, but it's basically saying that Lyra is not very imagi imaginative. Yeah. <laughs> and it says that the best liars never are. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but... Yeah, I pretty okay. strongly disagree. I also disagree with the rest of that part, but yes, go on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... But but he's trying to make a point, and I can respect the yes. point he's trying to make, that she's basically a sociopath in this book in a lot of different ways. Like, it's very funny when she's trying to convince John Fa to let her come on the expedition. She doesn't, like, immediately go with... I need to save my friend. My friend's been captured. It comes across very clearly that she's like, I just want to go north. I want to see what it's all about. I, I do appreciate that we're never given a, a, a sugar-coated Lyra. In fact, I can imagine a, there are readers out there who just despise Lyra. And the book's like, you know what? That's okay. She kind of is a despicable child. Uh, it just... So happens that there, there's one line to me that was um, kind of the, I guess, the moral crux of this whole thing. It's the scene where Lyre has just discovered Tony, the child who's been separated from his demon. And she's struggling with responding to this situation. And then the book tells us in Lyra's heart Revulsion struggled with compassion, and compassion won. That's, to me, I guess, where it, what it comes down to, is that she tries to do the right thing. The thing is, she doesn't always know what the right thing to do is, and that's part of her learning process and growing as a human. Uh, to address your other point about the structure, I was not a fan of the, the third-person point of view, because it, I'm just throwing numbers out here, but I, I would say it's something like 70% of the book is from Lyra's perspective, and then the other 30% kind of jumps around to different characters. But the thing is, since it's so imbalanced, those sections, when they happen, feel out of place, and it does, like mm -hmm. you said, feel like a narrative cheat. And especially <laughs> the scene with the master and the scholar discussing things right after we had that long scene with all the name dropping, that to me was just so abrupt and obtrusive. Mm -hmm. When the mystery boxes of this book, and there are many mystery boxes, are more organically opened, it's certainly more satisfying. The two scenes that really stick out to me are Lyra's conversation with... Mrs. Coulter in Bolvangar, that's the facility where they're cutting the children. And then as you raved about her conversation with <laughs> Asriel at the end of the book, we see Lyra grappling with these concepts that she only kind of understands. And she's pushing back and she's asking questions and the conversation's dynamic. And we get a sense of who Mrs. Coulter and Asriel are through these conversations where Mrs. Coulter is very trying to really downplay the whole notion of, oh, it's just a little cut. It's not that big of a deal. And the kids are so peaceful after. It's something to be 
glad about that it happened. And then you have Asriel, who's just a f***ing bastard. And it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to f***ing blow up a hole into, the, into space. I can see, theoretically, the admiration one could feel for just his bullheadedness that he believes so strongly in whatever he wants and wants to pursue that he'll just do it. And there, I, yeah, there's something admirable about it, but he's just such an obnoxious character to me. Wait, noxious or obnoxious? Obnoxious. Oh, obnoxious. I find him annoying, except for that last conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it's interesting because this, this book, I think my faults with it are mostly structural. Mm-hmm. But... I was deeply disappointed by Yofer's depiction because up until his appearance, we're constantly told that he basically tricked his way into becoming king. And it's implied that he's actually very clever and very good at manipulating to the point that he found a way to trick Yorick. And again, bears can't be tricked, but it seems that he found a way. So then when we finally see him and he's just like such a self-centered pushover. Like I know I said earlier that it's it was theoretically impressive that Lyra tricked him. But honestly, when you read that scene, it's like, wow, he kind of just bought the lie very, very easily. And then we find out that part of how he came to power actually is that he worked with Mrs. Coulter and Mrs. Coulter basically supplied everything he needed to get into power to which the, the I guess the idea is that uh, Yofer is this really easily manipulated bear that Mrs. Coulter could control. And it's like, oh, it's kind of, it's funny because it reminded me of how you were somewhat disappointed with the character Smaug in The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. And just that we we were, his character was so built up throughout the book. And then when we finally meet him, he was only there for a very short amount of time anyway. And he died so mm-hmm. easily. Kind of everything with the bears just felt very anticlimactic. I liked Yorick, but the larger conflict with him and the other bears and the bear culture in general fell flat for me. Well, okay. One slight note on character, and then I'll, I'll piggyback sure. on that. Just because, like, I want to say that I find it deeply amusing and also deeply on brand for both of us that you think Lord Azrael is obnoxious <laughs> because he is, like, he is not, I want to make it clear here, I know I have a reputation for liking the bad boys. I don't mean it in that way. I mean that I find him, like, a really fun character to read. I like seeing him on the page and i think actually one of my revelations this time around is like i remembered that scene of them talking things through being my favorite but i think i didn't understand quite how much i liked him as a character as a kid Mm. and like rereading it this time i was like oh no wonder i like toxic (laughs) very charismatic headstrong gonna make things happen regardless of the cost Mm -hmm. male character of course that's the kind of character i like to be to be fair, I would like him just as much as he was female. So I, <laughs> but there's just something I find him very dynamic and fascinating to read. So I do think it's so amusing that you think he's obnoxious. I'm like, this sounds like us. 
I will say but, that I do think thematically his character makes a lot of sense. I think he's very interesting in terms of how the book is commenting on adults in general, because there is this interesting thing where it does seem like Mrs. Coulter's the obvious villain in this, and she works with the church, so she must be bad. And then you have Asriel standing in as the person in opposition to the church. The church is trying to murder him, basically. But then we find out that Asriel is just as bad as everyone else. Or just basically every other adult. Well, not every other adult. But you know what I mean. He's just as bad regardless of his connection or lack of connection to the church. Which gets to the whole point of Lyra saying... Well, if Mrs. Coulter thinks dust is bad and Azrael thinks dust is bad, dust actually must be good because they're both bad people, which is uh, interesting logic. But uh, I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I wanted to agree with you on the bear front. The, the weird structural thing, like the biggest weird structural thing about this book is that what should be the climax comes at the end of part two. And part three is bear time. Bear time should come before <laughs> the breakout of the facility. That is our end goal, right? Is like the facility. And they try and make this switch to like the end goal being getting to Azrael, which like, yeah, that's not wrong either. But like, it feels like that facility should be closer to that and bear time should come first. Bear time feels like a minor adventure on the way to the facility. Mm-hmm. Because like, other than uh, Yorick, like, we haven't really spent that much time on the bears, and, like, we've heard snatches of things, but it's really been about the oblation board and the children and the severing of the children. Like, that's really the focus of the book. That's what gets brought up in the final bits with Azrael, which I guess are technically the actual climax of the book, but the bear stuff doesn't get brought up in all that. Like, that bear <laughs> stuff's not important. <laughs> the bear stuff only is necessary in order for her to get to Azrael. It... It leads to like a lot of pacing wonkiness. So between that and the distant third person narrator, you just get like it doesn't really have a natural build to the conclusion. And like agreed on the fact that like the tricking seems to happen really easily. There's a couple moments like that where Lyra is tricking adults by lying to them, and I'm like, guys, you would hope you would do a better job. Like when she's at <laughs> Mrs. Coulter's party, and she's just like convinces that one dude that she like knows everything and then he starts just telling her stuff i was like really would you are you really convinced by this i don't think so the thing with yofer that like really i was like no this is stupid is when she's like i just have to use a different room because i'm gonna do secret (laughs) demon things you could only see once i'm like who's gonna buy into that obviously she's doing something sneaky so I, I think those are the moments where I'm like, yeah, this just feels like but you're making this narrative happen, as opposed to, like, the story feeling organic. A somewhat similarly with uh, this I'm fine with, because I'm like, this is Azrael's special power, but, like, Roger contriving to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that feels uh, a bit of a stretch, but I could buy into it because there's the explanation that Asriel does have this special summoning power. So I'm like, okay, we're good. But yeah, it's it's rough because just the the general pacing feels not quite right. 
which is disappointing because like so much happens in this book and it really feels like it should be this like beginning slowly well not beginning slowly i i gotta say i i think you actually said you didn't like this I love the fact that we get dumped into so much world building immediately with little to no explanation. I love when stories do that, actually. They just expect you to keep up. Um, and I also love it because Lyra's in the same position as us. So then it, it feels right that we should be somewhat confused because she's somewhat confused. And it does give us all of these things to try and remember and keep in mind for later. And yeah, mystery boxes, puzzles to to be answered. I'm not as bothered as you are by the way some of those things get explained later. Especially if, if Lyra's actually in the situation being explained to. Because I'm like, yes, of course she would be asking questions about these things. But I, I love that getting dumped in. So it's like this very slams you into the world start. And then it feels like a slower building of the world, like setting up the characters and stuff. We get a kind of slow build of the gobblers. And then her going to his culture and things ramping up and the whole thing with Egyptians and it ramping up. And it feels like it should be this, like, the train gathering momentum as we're heading towards the end. And instead we get, we get the rescue of the children really quite early. And then this, like, weird detour to Bearland before the great spectacular final bit with Asriel. So I think, I think that's disappointing, especially because, like, if I remember correctly, in later books, the bears do not play that big a role. So it's not like this is important for setting up later book stuff. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But I do not remember the bears doing all that much. In fact, I remember being disappointed that York is in so little of the rest of the books. That's the thing. It it just... I'm not quite sure what Pullman was trying to really... There's the whole thing that I pointed out earlier, how... Yofer's death seems very reminiscent of how Lyra describes a person without a demon. And it's like, okay, that's cool, but so what? Like, what, what's important about that for understanding this book? You know, it's funny because uh, he criticized, and I, and I want to evaluate this book, at least, in respect to this, but he criticized the Chronicles of Narnia for having this sort of sadomasochistic relationship to violence and you look at a scene like that and you're like well that's pretty violent to say the least and i'm not quite sure why we had to watch that happen uh so it i feel like maybe he just thought it was more profound than it actually is because yeah the bears just they're cool it seems like a very cool culture but yeah, uh, we don't see enough to really make it worth our while. I wonder if part of the reason it's there. So like, so there's that short story. That's one of, he said is one of his other uh-huh. um, inspirations. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's this part at the end where it's talking about like this guy is telling the story to the other guy about how he went to some place in Russia and was like doing some sword fighting with some guys there. And they're like, Oh, come meet our master. And their master is this bear. Uh, and I'll just read this part. The bear stood as I in astonishment stepped before it, on its hind feet, its back leaning on a pillar to which it was chained, its right paw raised ready to strike, looking me in the eye. I didn't know whether I was dreaming, seeing myself confronted by such an opponent. However, thrust, thrust, Herr VG, see whether you can hit him. Since I had recovered a little from my astonishment, I lunged at him with my rapier. 
The bear made a slight movement with its paw and parried the thrust. I tried to distract it with a few feints. The bear remained motionless. With lightning speed, I lunged at him again. I should certainly have struck a human chest. The bear made another slight movement with its paw and again parried the thrust. The self-possession of the bear continued, uh, the bear contrived to rob me of my composure. Thrusts and feints alternated. I dripped with sweat, all to no avail. Not only that the bear, like the best fencer in the world, parried all my thrusts, my feints, no fencer in the world could match him in this, drew no reaction from him at all. Eye to eye, as though he were able to read into my soul, he stood, his paw raised ready to strike, and when my thrusts were not in earnest, he remained motionless. So that, very clearly, is what inspired the armored bears, in my opinion. I mean, that sounds precisely like Yeah, that seems them. like one-to-one with what happens but in one scene with Lyra and Yorick. Right. Um, and so then, like, shortly afterwards, there's this bit, it's not about the bears, but it says the person finishes their story and he's like, uh, you're in possession of everything you need to know to understand my point. We see that the extent to which, as in the organic world, thought becomes dimmer and weaker, the grace within it emerges ever brighter and more powerful. Indeed, just as when the intersection of two lines on the one side of a point, after passing through infinity, suddenly presents itself again on the other side. Or the image made by a concave mirror after disappearing into infinity suddenly reappears complete before us. So, when knowledge has, as it were, passed through an infinity, grace returns, and in such a manner, that is, simultaneously, appears most purely in that form of the human body that has either absolutely none or infinite consciousness, that is to say, either in the form of a mannequin or a god. Consequently, I said a little absentmindedly, we should have to partake once again of the tree of knowledge in order to fall back into a state of innocence? Precisely so, he replied. That is the last chapter of the history of the world. Hmm. That part doesn't have to do with the bears, but very clearly has to do with the rest of this story. So I just wanted all the record. (laughs) But like, there is a part of me that wonders, because this story seems to be so important in uh, Pullman coming up with his dark materials, if he really wanted to keep the, like, armored bears in, because that was one of his inspiration points was the armored bears and then that part second part i read that again seems to be so clearly tied to the story is like one paragraph that's only a sentence long after the bear bit i i wonder if there's a part of him that like maybe his ideas outgrew the beginning stages where he had the armored bears in more and he couldn't bear to take them out oh boy that's bad even for me stick around for part two next week on reread. See you then.